Once upon a time, I was a supersessionist. Actually, I held to this way of thinking about Jewish Israel for much of my self-consciously theological life. That's a quote from today's guest on Messiah Podcast, Dr. Gerald R. McDermott. But he continues, then I heard a wake-up call. And it was a radical awakening, leading him to write books like Israel Matters, The New Christian Zionism, and many other contributions that are helping Christians see the ongoing centrality of Israel and the Jewish people. We'll hear about his wake-up call today and much more. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. I'm Damian Eisner, here with my colleague, Jacob Franzak. What's up, Jacob? You know, I'm fairly excited because this year I planted a ginkgo tree like three years ago. And every year... What's a ginkgo like, tree? A ginkgo tree. It's ginkgo. That's what it's called. Ginkgo biloba to help you be a better podcast host with a better memory? I don't know if it's the same plant. It's okay. just a ginkgo tree. It's like, so I planted one three years ago in my front yard. And every year I'm out of town when the leaves turn, cause the, the leaves of a ginkgo tree turn like this bright uh, yellow in the fall. And then they all fall off the tree. And every year I've been in, in out of town. Like last year I was in Marshfield for our creative team meeting. The whole time the tree was yellow. But this year I was able to witness the whole process firsthand. It's wonderful. It was glorious. Beautiful, beautiful tree. Glorious. That's I just drove through the mountains of North Georgia. Oh. Uh, and if you want to see glorious, I mean, I've heard about the Northeast and Maine and or not Maine, but where is it? Anywhere, uh, somewhere up there, you you fantastic leaf watching Northeasterners. But yeah, the mountains in Georgia have something special. It was it was an autumn showcase of beauty. You know, it, Michigan's pretty nice this year, too. I went, I drove to Traverse City with my wife not that long ago, and the, the trees were just like a whole way up, just absolutely radiant palette of colors. Yeah, that's a good word. Radiant. Well, we are here today with the author of Israel Matters. Well, actually, we're here with both authors of Israel <laughs> Matters. Because yeah, what a great title for a book. Jacob Franzak has written a book called Israel Matters, and so has our guest, Dr. Gerald McDermott. So I, di I didn't look to find out which one came out first, but I'm pretty sure it was mine. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure he stole my title rather than you. I well, so let's do a little <laughs> mini interview with Jacob Franzak, though, the author of Israel Matters. What inspired you to write Israel Matters? Were you, were um, you ever a supersessionist? You know, I see, yeah, probably, because, so, okay, so Dr. McDermott wrote a book called The New Christian Zionism. I was raised in the old Christian Zionism, okay. um, which is which is just dispensationalism. And so dispens in dispensationalism, the idea is that, like, Israel was the people of God in the last dispensation, and then, like, when the tribulation starts, they get to be the people of God again, because all the Christians get raptured. Mm -hmm. But, like, right yeah. now... They're sort of on pause. Mm -hmm. They're not not the people of God, but they're they're not like in focus right now. And what I've come to realize through my contact with First Fruit Design and Messianic Judaism is, 
Oh, the people of Israel are always the people of God. They're never like on pause. They're never out of focus. God's always working with Israel at the center of uh, of everything that He's doing in the world. I'm glad so. you I'm glad you came to that conclusion. And if you have not read Jacob Franzak's Israel Matters, you should read it. Yeah, guests, go pick it up. But read the first one first. Read Yeshua Matters, then read Israel Matters. God willing, I'll eventually write a, a couple more books in the series. I'd like to write a book about the Torah because I think just people, as we're going to see in the, as Gerald McDermott is going to talk about in our uh, our interview with him in a few minutes here, people just have this idea the Torah is like the law and it's oppressive and it's bad and it's awful. That's not the case at all. But yeah. I haven't gotten around to writing that yet. So. Well, and and when you retire, you're going to write the last one, which is going to be Ginkgo Matters. <laughs> On to our guest, though, the author of Another Israel Matters, Dr. McDermott, the fairly recently retired Anglican Chair of Divinity at Samford's Beeson Divinity School. He is an author, co-author, editor of 24 books. He's taught in the areas of history and doctrine, world religion, Anglican studies, 18th century theologian. Jonathan Edwards is his specialty. All of these things in a very long and uh, thorough and I'm certain uh, very influential career in academia. I love that this guy's a Jonathan Edwards scholar because I have I mean, I won't call it an urban legend because it's it's a it's on my mom's side, and they were all farmers up in Charlevoix. It's a rural legend that we're all re that uh, my family's related to Jonathan Edwards. It's probably not true, but it's a it's a legend. Anyway, so this guy went from being a Jonathan Edwards scholar, he's, which he still is, yeah. to adopting a post supersessionist worldview, and he's been so influential for the past twenty five years in that sphere that Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn, a rabbi and scholar living in Israel, had this to say about his work. And I quote, simply stated, McDermott's essay is remarkable, stunning, fertile, and perhaps even redemptive. Stunning in its understanding, boldness, and sympathy for my faith and my people, it is no exaggeration to say that Jews have waited almost 1,900 years to hear a Christian theologian talk this way about Jews and Judaism. That's, that's strong. Let's hear what Dr. McDermott has to say. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. We are honored uh, and blessed to have with us today Dr. Gerald McDermott, who is now, as part of the First Roots of Zion podcast, Messiah podcast, we're friends, so we're calling him Jerry for the rest of the podcast. Welcome, Jerry. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Damien. It's my great um, pleasure and joy to be with all you folks. We are, uh, I, I am, a, of course, a fan. I have, you can't, of course, you can't see it because we're on audio, but I have a number of Gerald McDermott books in my catalog that I have read and thoroughly enjoyed. I opened the oh, yeah. podcast 
uh, in our introduction with a quote from an article that you wrote that began, once upon a time, I was a supersessionist. Now, if you were still a supersessionist, you probably wouldn't be on this podcast. Uh, for anyone familiar with your recent work, you are most definitely no longer a supersessionist. But for those of our listeners who may not know you or your extensive catalog, would you give us a nutshell story? of your journey beyond replacement theology and why this has become such a strong part of your life and your mission. Sure, Damien. I, it, it started about 25 years ago when I was already a, um, a public scholar. I'm ashamed to say I, I had written about 10, 12 books by that time wow. uh, uh, with, a, with replacement theology as my intellectual theological context. And I was leading a tour of Israel, um, and I had as my guide Baruch Kavaznica, who is was working on his PhD at, at Hebrew University. He married a Messianic Jew way back when, and and that was seven children ago. Mm. And and he was a very humble, soft-spoken guide. And our, after I would give my uh, perspective at this site and that site, he very humbly would take me aside afterwards, one-on-one, and say, Dr. Jerry, uh, have you ever considered this? Have you ever read this author or that article? And I realized after a few of these times of pulling me aside so gently and so humbly, I realized that he was pointing me to a literature I was completely ignorant of. And I started to wonder, man, uh, maybe I'm wrong on my perspective on Israel here. So when I got home, I started reading the sources he had mentioned, which led me to other sources, which led me to more. And before I knew it, I realized that I had been wrong on my perspective on Israel and the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of the gospel. And you you asked Damien why this has become such a big part of my career. Uh, um, I had been a Jonathan Edwards scholar. I'm still a Jonathan Edwards scholar. I just finished my eighth book on Edwards. I, I you know, I had been a scholar of, of theology of the world religions, and I've done seven books on that. And I've done a whole bunch of other books on all different, uh, you know, related topics, including one on stuttering, because I'm a stutterer. Really? I, I was a lifelong stutterer, and I've done a book called 12 Famous Stutterers from Moses to Marilyn Monroe. But in the last 10 years, I, I've put out three books and a zillion articles on theology of Israel. Mm -hmm. And I just finished my magnum opus, uh, 33 chapters, but it, it'll be about 400 pages in print. And at the center of it is the theology of Israel. So I have concluded that this is the key to everything, mm. really. This is the key to who Jesus is. Yeah. If you don't understand theology of Israel, you don't understand the true Jesus, which means you don't understand the true gospel, which means you have no idea of really um, what, what the cosmos is all about. Yeah. So I feel that strongly about it, and that's why I have uh, written the things that I have. That's fascinating. I mean, we've seen this journey recapitulated uh, many times, but 
it's uh it's nice to see someone with a phd can uh can can go through the same process i mean it's like when you when you when you dive that deep into uh into any topic and you become like an expert it's hard to like uh, shift gears i would imagine now i have a follow-up question to uh, to damien's question which is so you're an anglican Yes. And yes. we, uh, at First Fruits Design, our favorite Anglican, well, maybe after this podcast, it'll be you. But I think probably before <laughs> now, our favorite Anglican would have been Paul Philip Levertov, who, mm. um, who yeah. integrated like, uh, Judaism and Jewish yes. liturgy into his, uh, Anglican congregation. Yes. And so to see, to see you come to the conclusions you've come to and to see him feeling comfortable in like a, an Anglican role, um, is there something about Anglicanism that made this journey to a post-supersessionist theology easier? Or is there anything about Anglicanism that made it harder for you? Like, how does it look in that context versus maybe a Baptist coming to the same conclusions? Well, I think Baptist, to, to, to pick up on your last sentence, uh, might find it easier because so many Baptists have been introduced to dispensationalist theology, which, mm, which yeah. has Israel at the center. Now, I'm, I, uh, I was a Baptist preacher at one time, but not Southern Baptist. Uh, yeah. As an Anglican, actually, it was more difficult because of my reverence, and I think that is the proper word, for N.T. Wright. Mm. I had been, and Tom Wright is actually a friend, and I've worked with Tom. And Tom was a, uh, I, 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 I can say he's a godly man. And he had provided my uh structural framework for my understanding of who Jesus was and what the gospel is. Yeah. And I realized pretty soon that Tom was wrong on this. Tom is a mm -hmm. classic supersessionist, good and godly man as he is. Um and in the global north, Tom Wright is is enormously influential. He's probably the single most influential biblical scholar for Catholics or Protestants. Catholics read Tom Wright. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, I had, so in that sense, Jacob, it made things a little bit more difficult, uh, not only mm -hmm. because Tom, Tom was a friend, but also because I had been, um, so rooted in his basic theological framework and I had yeah. to get free from that and work out my own. Um, a theology of Israel, theology of Jesus, and theology of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, we love. I mean, we love Tom Wright. We dunk on him a little bit though, because it feels he knows so much. Like he's he dove so deep into like the context of the New Testament, and he has like all of this knowledge, and he does such a good job of like integrating that. Like uh, even just like his article on Christ and Caesar was so good. Like it was revelatory for me, and to get that close and it's sort of like spike the ball at the five yard line so to speak like we're we're still pulling he'll he'll come he'll come around you can convince him You're, you guys are friends again i've read quite a quite a number of your articles and books and i i but i can't remember which article this was but you said after this was after the tour guide and your experience and sort of the revelation and and the eye opening and the and the and the Wow, I guess I don't know what the word is. Theological shift barely begins to to say what really happened in your life to go from that to this. But you said 
after several years, several years of following up the leads, uh, you said, I began to realize that I had missed much of the Jewish reality of both Testaments because I had been trained to miss mm. it, mm. which, uh, you know, I read the Bible carefully for 25 years, but missed what was right in front of me, which I guess goes along to the NT, goes along with the NT right situation you found yourself in. It's hard to buck the, the system when the pillars are telling you this is what it is. But but I want to ask you how prevalent you are you've been in academia for I mean you were 26 years at at one institution you recently retired from Beeson you you are no stranger to academia. Um how prevalent is that problem today in our religious teaching institutions? It's extremely prevalent. It's all over the place. Um, unfortunately, as in most seminaries, uh, both Protestant and Catholic, uh, now the Catholic is starting to get a little bit better because mm-hmm. they certainly, because of Nostra Aetate, Vatican II, 1965, yeah. they changed on theology of the people of Israel. They're, they're still working on theology of the land. Mm. Um, but at least they officially, since 1965, the Roman Catholics have been saying that God has not given up on his covenant with the Jewish people, mm-hmm. which unfortunately most um, um, mainland Protestants uh, uh, still think that God gave up on the Jewish people, and and more and more evangelicals are starting to think that. Yeah, uh, especially those outside of the dispensationalist uh, framework. And as I said, I'm not a dispensationalist; I never have been, but I do credit them for their intellectual courage, particularly those who have, who were in academia, all those guys down at Dallas Seminary for all those years who were despised mm-hmm. by yeah. the academy almost precisely because of their dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, but it's still very, very prevalent. Uh, the, the average seminary you go to um, uh, on, on the Protestant side the, and even the evangelical side, uh, you will hear only supersessionism. Which is yeah. replacement theology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's different for some Baptists. Uh, you have a better chance at a Baptist seminary uh, because of what I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. But more and more, you hear dis- you, you 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 hear supersessionism um, because of the generational change. You got all these new PhDs who who are coming out of these distinguished. Um, PhD programs, which in both in theology and in Bible are all supersessionists. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, Mark Kinzer and David Rudolph and I and Kendall Solon started about five years ago a new society in the AAR and SBL. That, that's the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature. Mm. which is the largest meeting each year of religion scholars from all over the world in all different mm-hmm. disciplines. And um, our, 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 our society is called the Society for Post-Supersessionist Theology. And our numbers have been going up um, each year. So now there are hundreds. We have hundreds of members, Jews and Christians, from the Bible, from theology, from world religions, from history departments, uh, from many different departments, literature departments, um, who are recognizing the um, textual and theological problems with supersessionism. So, Baruch Hashem. Yes. So uh, there's a growing movement, 
and and our hope and our prayer is this trickles down to mm. the seminaries which produce the pastors and the rabbis um and the priests uh in my anglican uh, denomination which which trickles down eventually which, which makes its way in in sermons and thus changes the minds of people's uh, of people in the pew I know Jacob has a thousand questions to play off that, but before he he does, I just want to say thank you for your courage to do what you have done. Thank you for the efforts that you're making. It's significant because I asked you about the problem. You answer the question about the problem, but then you also do the do the thing which so few people do. And here's the solution. You know, don't yeah. don't don't just focus on the problem. Create a solution. Doctor Kinzer's been on the podcast. I'm sure you know Doctor Jen Rosner. Doctor Rosner's been on the podcast. You're on the podcast. This is our little little bit of trying to be a part of a part of the team. Mark Mark and Jen are good friends. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't know. Maybe ten years ago, Boaz Michael, our founder and uh, president, wrote a book called Tent of David. And I sort of helped with the research process for that book. And one of the things we wanted to do was um, to tell people who were on board, people who are post-supersessionists, how can you go make a difference? How can you be like, how can you go influence other people? And we said, you know, go, don't be afraid to go to church. You might not agree with everything they're saying, but go and just like participate. And, and um, at the time, the conclusion I came to was, you know, you're probably going to have more luck at like an independent Baptist church because all you got to do is convince the pastor and maybe some elders, and then you've got yourself a like a post-supersessionist outpost. And we also said, like, don't go to your Catholic parish and debate the priest because he's probably got, like, he's got the weight of a, a 2,000 years of tradition behind him. He's not going to be, like, amenable necessarily to uh, to what you got to say. But counterintuitively, as I've been watching for the past decade or so, I've been real impressed with the Catholic Church, like you said, with Nostra Aetate, Lumen Gentium, a, a lot of stuff that came out of Vatican II. Um, and I wondered... Because this, I mean, I'm not sure anyone expected all of that to happen. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have expected the Catholics to be like the most progressive as far as Jewish Christian dialogue, but I think they really, in some, in some sense, have been. And I wondered, with you there in the Anglican Church, what would it take? What would it take to to get everybody on board? Like to make it to officially, like as an organization for the Anglican Church to become post supersessionist. I mean, I know there's some people who are already there. You, your book, Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, has a chapter by Archbishop Beach. So, like, there's some there's some heavy hitters who are already on the path or or flying the flag, so to speak. But what would it take for the whole Ang Anglican Church to say? Okay, the Jewish people are God's people, and the the the, the land of Israel was a, a was a permanent like uh, permanently belongs to the children of Abraham. What does that process look like? Is it feasible? Is it going to happen? I mean, eventually it'll happen. Is Jesus going to come back? But do you see it happening in your lifetime? And what would that process look like? Uh, I think it's very feasible. Uh, but let me first go back to the Roman Catholics. Uh, they they are working on theology of the land now. Uh, the best Catholic theologian in England, published a book about two years ago with Oxford University Press mm. uh, calling for a minimal Catholic Zionism. And he's a good friend and he's having great impact. Um, uh, I, I was the only non-Catholic and non-Jewish speaker at two conferences last May, one, one in New York, mm. 
city and one in Washington, D.C., for Catholics considering the land and, and the state of Israel. Um, the, 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 there are several prominent Catholic theologians who are Jews themselves. Mm. Uh, Catholic priests yeah. and theologians who are Jews themselves who are working on this. Now, uh, in terms of Anglicanism, um, you have to know the distinctions there. There's the Episcopal Church here in this country, which mm. is hopelessly supersessionist. It's, it's dead and it's dying and dead. It's post-Christian because it you know, has adopted all these theologies that, that are radically contrary to scripture and, and, and the Christian tradition. Then there's the Church of England, which is also going the same way, uh, hopelessly liberal, hopelessly contrary to scripture and uh, tradition. And, and then there's the Anglican Church in North America, which I'm part of, and Foley mm. Beach is the Archbishop of. Um, we broke away from the Episcopal Church. I used to be an Episcopal priest, and, and then I switched my credentials to the ACNA, Anglican Church in North America. So... Mm. So we are the ones who reject the false theology on marriage and sexuality of the Episcopal Church. Now, uh, you know, some of us are post-supersessionists and others are supersessionists. Now, but Anglicanism worldwide is mostly in the global south now. It's, it's really, uh, oh, f um, 80% of Anglicans in the world are in the global south. In, wow. in Nigeria alone, there are more Anglicans in church than in all of America and Great Britain put together on Sunday morning. And almost all your Anglicans in the global south are Zionists. Really? Oh, yes. When you go to Israel, and I'm sure all you guys have been to, to Israel, um, um, didn't you ever see these big door, tour buses full of African Christians? Yeah, definitely. Um, they they know intuitively that Jesus was a Jew and the land of Israel is still the Holy Land and it's still significant. And they know that um, Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem. I, I mean, they know these things in ways that, that Anglicans and Christians generally in the global north don't. don't. And this is where Christianity is growing uh, in the global south. So I'd say... Jacob, there's huge hope for um, theology of Israel, the proper theology of Israel, um, growing in the future in Christian churches as, as the center of Christianity has moved to the global south. I mean, that's where it is today. It's no longer in the global. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, I read the table of contents for that book that's coming out, That um, your, your next book. Um, mm -hmm. And you talk about the center of gravity shifting. Yeah. And, um that's exciting i mean i've i've been i've been to australia that doesn't count that's not really part that's not really part of the global uh, australia culture is really the global north yeah 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 so i like i haven't i haven't been to south america i haven't been to africa my pastor has he's been over he goes over like two or three times a year we, we partner with a ministry over there um in ethiopia but um right. i haven't and but i'm not surprised yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that there's a sort of dynamism there in the global South that um, oh, I feel is lacking in, uh, in yes. at least in, in where I live. You, you, you know, you, you get off the plane in the countries in Africa. Uh, I taught in Nigeria a few summers ago 
Mm. And you just feel faith in the air. Everyone has faith. Now, there's Muslims and Christians, but they're all full of faith. Yeah. There are no atheists, virtually no atheists. They're all people with great faith. And it's a, it's, it is like going back to the 18th or 17th century in the global north. Well, actually, it's like, it, it, it's like going back to the second and third centuries when Christianity was illegal, was being persecuted, uh, as is being persecuted in the global south, and yet mm -hmm. that, that only seems to grow the faith. Become an FFOZ friend today and join First Fruits of Zion in restoring the original faith and message of the Jewish Jesus. Sign up now at ffoz.org friends. Centuries of misunderstanding about the Torah, the Jewish people, and the Jewishness of the New Testament obscured the real good news message of the kingdom. Today, a prophetic resurgence of faith is breaking out, and FFOZ friends are at the forefront of this restoration. Become a friend today at ffoz.org friends. We've mentioned a couple of times um, Christian Zionism and, and dispensationalism. In your book, Israel Matters, you, you take the reader through a little bit of, of Christian Zionism. And I, I used to kind of think that this was that, that, that it got its start with dispensationalism, with Darby Ooh. and Schofield, but, but you locate those origins much, much earlier. So, so when, in your opinion, did Christians first begin to anticipate that regathering of the Jewish people to the land of Israel? Uh, they first began to anticipate that in the first century, and it's, <laughs> it's throughout the New Testament. It's right there on the surface of the New Testament, and we haven't seen it because we've been trained not to see it, as we mm -hmm. said earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in the Father's. Uh, uh, um, some of the early fathers, even those like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian, who um, think the uh, Jews have lost the mandate, but even they believe in the millennium with Jerusalem at the center of it, that, that, mm. that, um, uh, that Israel will be restored. Even they believe that. Now, it it goes underwater. It goes under the radar in the Middle Ages because of Augustine, who said the millennium is the church on earth uh, rather than a future age. Yeah. But then it pops up in the 16th century with the pietists on the continent and the Puritans over in England. And, and, and they are Christian Zionists. And then it's particularly mm -hmm. prominent in the 17th century amongst John Cotton in Boston, well, he starts over in England, and then he comes to Boston. And then Increase Mather writes a whole book about this, uh, basically a Christian Zionist book. Uh, huge influence upon Puritans, both in England and in the United States, well, in the colonies. And then the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards. Now, I don't know if you guys know much about Jonathan Edwards. He was, by all accounts, the greatest religious thinker that the Americas have ever seen. Uh, mm. Nobody comes close. And, and it's not just me saying this. Yeah. Um, Yale, Yale University Press just finished his critical edition of his works at 73 volumes. 
Mm. Wow. wow. So, so, so he was far more than a hellfire and damnation preacher. Now he was a hellfire and damnation yeah. preacher. And I think everyone that, knows that part of him. Um, I think that's a good thing, frankly. Uh, I think we ought to talk about hell a whole lot more than we do, but um, because it's real, mm. <laughs> it's a real threat. And it's only the fear of the wrath of God that drives us to the Messiah uh, as the savior. Um, but, um, now, now here's Edwards with enormous influence on er, early American theology. And he was a Christian Zionist. He said, mm-hmm. the Jews are going to return to the land. They will return to the land sometime in the future. And Israel will be restored. Now, he was saying this back in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, long before the, the rise of dispensationalism in the mid right. and late 19th century. So Christian Zionism is 2,000 years old, not just 150 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit of a difference. So the relationship between Israel and the church, I mean, on a physical level, like just looking at the history, it's a, it's, I mean, quite the story. Um, And, you know, there's a million books about it. In your book, Israel Matters, you talk about the relationship between Israel and the church as far as like its potential or like the spiritual, um, like what it should have been. Um, and you use an analogy that I really like to use the analogy of scripture and tradition. Um, you said that scripture and tradition have a mutual reliance. Now, um, a lot of our podcast listeners are probably like they grew up in the Protestant tradition. So just to elaborate a little bit, um, Anglicans are not necessarily, I mean, I've seen some of them are, but for them, if they, if they know they're, they're, uh, <laughs> what they're supposed to be doing, they're not necessarily like five sole Protestants because Anglicans have a tradition and they're straightforward, as far as I've been able to tell, about the fact that they, it's not just the Bible. Even like the Wesleyans who broke off are like, yeah, we've got the Bible. We also got tradition and we've got reason and we've got experience, you know, the, the whole Wesleyan quadri- uh, quadrilateral there. And I love this because, um, look, you know, looking at Messianic Judaism, we also have, we're, we're pretty straightforward here at First Fruits of Zion that there's, there are traditions we need to consider. Of course, in our context, it's, it's Jewish tradition. But, um, you know, we, we, we don't really love the whole idea of sola scriptura because we, you, you just eliminate um, all this good stuff that, uh, that, that we need, actually, to, to interpret the Bible. But um, I loved that, that this analogy that you used to explain that Israel and the church also have an inextricable and what's supposed to be like a mutually beneficial relationship. And we've talked a lot about this at First Church Design, but I wanted to get your take. Can you explain what was it supposed to be like or what should it look like? What is what is what are the, the mutually uh, dependent or mutually beneficial roles of Israel and the church? Well, Jacob, I'm glad that you recognize the importance of reading scripture through tradition. The problem is uh, a widespread, particularly amongst evangelicals, and I would suspect amongst many Messianic Jews, because you know many Messianic Jews come out of and still in many ways are in evangelicalism, yeah. you know, an epistemological naivete. Now, now, epistemology is a fancy word for how we know what we know. And naivete, of course, being naive about how we know what we know, and particularly how we understand the Bible. Uh, historically, in evangelicalism, uh, most 
have thought, well, by golly, I just read the Bible and I get my theology straight from the Bible. Yeah. But as, as Jesus believers get older and look back, they start to realize that there's no such thing as reading the Bible without a tradition. That every one of us, even the most conservative fundamentalist, reads the Bible through a perspective that he or she gained from previous pastors, from family members, from Bible study groups, from books they read. And this influences what they see in the Bible. And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that are right in front of our nose, as we were saying before. And and we don't even see it because of uh, how we've been trained to read the Bible. Mm. So the, uh, and let me say something else that might be provocative for your audience. Please. The idea that um, I should dispense with tradition and just read the Bible by myself and for myself and interpret it for myself and come up with my own doctrines and not these all these man-made doctrines that tradition is full of. Yeah. And, and the most important thing is just me and Jesus, me and Yeshua, mm-hmm. my personal relationship with Jesus. That's the bottom line. Doctrine is man-made. It doesn't really matter what I believe about Jesus as long as I just have this personal relationship with Yeshua. Guess what that... Now, that's a particular method of reading and understanding the Bible. And and you know what that method is? That is the liberal Protestant method. Mm -hmm. That is the seedbed for liberal Protestantism. So that might be bothersome to some of your listeners, but it's historically true. Mm. And, And the point is, is that we need to read the Bible. It, it's impossible to read the Bible without a tradition that is influencing us. We need to yeah. seek the best tradition to guide us, to help us understand the Bible, who Jesus mm. is, what the gospel is, and, and what Israel is. So it's not a matter of, of whether we read with tradition, but which tradition we choose to read the Bible through. As the Ethiopian uh, eunuch said to Philip, how shall, I, how shall I understand unless someone guides me? We need yeah. to choose the right guide. Now, here's what I have written in my new book, which th- this is my magnum opus. Uh, this is my, Jesus across the centuries, correct? Uh, actually, across the millennia now. I, uh, okay. it's, he, he, took so long, he took so long to write it that now it's millennia instead of centuries. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so Jesus across the millennia, how the mm-hmm. Jewish Messiah has been saving the world from Eden to the New Jerusalem. Mm. So, uh, uh, you know, I have a whole chapter on the meaning of Israel and its relationship to the church. Mm. And I, and, and here's basically what I say in there. I, I say there is one body of Messiah in two expressions. The first is the faithful from the nations who are joined to Israel through the Jewish Messiah. And the second expression of the body of Messiah is the assembly of Jewish believers in Yeshua. 
Those are the two expressions of the body of Messiah. In their distinctions and their mutual blessings, they anticipate the shalom of the renewed earth to come. Now, Gentiles do not become Israelites, but associate members of the commonwealth of Israel. That's Ephesians 2. Right. Mm -hmm. This is God's divine diversity, which supersessionists are always wanting to collapse in into a boring... One new man. One new man, which is framed through uh, the Enlightenment perspective of yeah. actually suppressing diversity. Mm-hmm. And and uh, yielding uh, uh, a monochromatic uh, sameness that eliminates uh, distinctions. So you know a great uh, a great analogy is marriage. The two become one. Man and woman become one. Now, man and man and woman in their differences um, are those those differences are not eliminated. Yeah, but there's a new unity that is a complex unity mm. that highlights the differences. So too, the body of Messiah um, is in these two expressions where distinctions are retained. Yeah. Um, you know, for Paul, um, and Paul, of course, is key to understanding ecclesiology. Uh, these ethnic distinctions are recognized, but they're not permitted to become. Uh, means of discrimination. So, um, and Dan Juster, I think, is right in in saying that Messianic Judaism is the organic bridge between the church, which is mostly Gentile, and the wider Jewish community. And for the Gentile church to embrace Messianic Judaism and to understand Messianic Judaism is our opportunity. Now I speak as a Gentile. It's our opportunity to change the tragic history of the church toward Jews that started back in the fourth century. Now, now, now there were some problems before the fourth century, but, but it was in, the the um, supersessionism was institutionalized by Constantine in the fourth century. Yeah, and this is our opportunity now to start to change that tragic history. Uh, so, Messianic Jews are the eschatological first fruits that sanctify the whole. Are we like that first fruits? Yes, and <laughs> we Gentiles need Messianic Jews to help cure us of our temptation as Gentile as Gentile believers to Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. That's the Gentile tendency. It's always to Gnosticism, to yeah. reject the properly Jewish and properly truthful and biblical uh, recognition of the importance of the body and of life in this this material world and in yeah. the renewed world that that will be full of bodies. Yeah. So this to hear you talk about two expressions it reminds me of uh, Dr. Kinzer's bilateral ecclesiology. Was, yeah. it, would you say that's the framework that um, makes the yes. most sense to you? I it, uh, yes, it does. I've learned a lot from Mark. Mark 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 has been one of my great teachers. Mm-hmm. 
So we're we're just slightly different from that. What, what do we have, Damien? Proleptic radial ecclesiology, or or so, distinction theology, which is distinction right along theology. right along the lines of what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think our our uh, the only way that we we may slightly different uh, from Doctor Kinzer is that we ha- we are fairly hopeful that we can get everybody back together in one uh, umbrella, and that at the center is is uh, Yeshua. And then you have like his apostles, and then you have like a messianic Judaism, and it's and then from there it radiates out um, to the nations, rather than sort of being two silos, right? Um, right. But it's, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an idea that really draws. It's drawing the future kingdom reality, um, sort of as close to now as as possible, and it's a very aspirational idea, I think. But well, I would be hopeful for that too, Jacob that the two silos do not remain um, um, uh, permanently separated until the eschaton. And I yeah. think, you know, I've, I've talked about this with Mark Kinzer, and Mark says the same thing. Uh, he, uh, he says he's frequently misinterpreted as mm-hmm. wanting to hold on to these, this radical separation between the two silos. And he says, no, temporarily, um, they need to be somewhat separate because of the threat that we've seen in the last 1600 years that Jews will die out and become too assimilated to the Gentile church. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a fair assessment. I think, and he, he explains this really well in, in uh, post-missionary Messianic Judaism. He, he has a whole section in the introduction about how like when you do theology, you have to look at history. You can't just do it at like uh, in your head, like not thinking about all the consequences of all of the theology that's come before. Um, sometimes you have to you have to adapt to the reality of the situation. I, I appreciate that. Well, and there, um, there's also a significant component of identity in the Messianic synagogue that must remain Jewish. You you mentioned sort of the evangelical lean of many. Messianic Jews, even not to mention all of the Gentiles, and of course I mean nothing negative by the term, but all of the Gentiles who come into the Messianic synagogue. If we do not maintain a strong Jewish expression within the Messianic synagogue, we lose the ability to have any attraction to our traditional Jewish brothers and sisters. It cannot look like, again, no offense, it can't look like an Assemblies of God church where we say the Shema. It's important that we maintain a strong Jewish identity within the Messianic community. Let me ask you a different question about your journey over the last, well, it's been, when was, when was the, when was the Israel trip with Baruch? How long is this journey? I lost track of how long. Um, uh, it was roughly 25 years ago. Okay. So over 25 years, reevaluating so much of what you, you, you saw as bedrock theology, Knowing the value of the, the quote, Old Testament, the Torah, possibly, and the life of the disciple of Messiah, I'm curious about any aspects of this realization in terms of the, the Jewishness of Christianity and our faith. Uh, that have that have become a part of your life. I mean, the Sabbath, observing you know, festivals, or ha- has your post-supersessionist transformation impacted you 
beyond just the biblical interpretation of what you teach? How has your personal life and faith and expression as a disciple been affected, or has it? I mean, I know you're an Anglican, but I'm I'm just right. I hope that question makes sense. Um, are, are you familiar with the God fearers in the New Testament, particularly in Acts yeah. of the Apostles? Yes. And, and and have you been to Turkey and seen the ruins where you've seen where you see God fearers in Greek um, inscribed in into the stone steps of these Roman amphitheaters? I've not been to Turkey. But I'm familiar with the inscriptions. Yeah, and 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 there might be some of them in, in Israel. Uh, and I've only been to Israel 19 times, and so I haven't seen uh, <laughs> you know as much as I should have. Right. But I've been to Turkey a bunch, and I've led tours there as well as tours towards Israel and to Egypt and Greece. And um, but and you know these God fearers came to the synagogue each Saturday morning and they did not become Jews, right? They were, right. they were not proselytes. They were God fearers. Um, they came to the synagogue and they recognized immediately the beauty of this liturgy and, and their sacraments. And I would call them sacraments. And I do believe they are sacraments. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, a circumcision, I would call a sacrament. And of course, uh, you know, a Passover meal, a sacrament. Mm. they recognize immediately the infinite superiority of Jewish moral standards Mm -hmm. um, to Greco-Roman moral standards. They, they, They recognize immediately that the God of Israel is the true God, light years apart from these ridiculous Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. Um, they recognized that their whole lives needed to be shaped by the God of Israel and um, learning each Saturday morning at the synagogue from the rabbi Mm -hmm. and from their mostly Jewish fellow believers. That's me. That's me. Um, And, and, you know, God has called me as a teacher and as a preacher and as a theologian, writing books and articles. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there is nothing that I write or speak that is not influenced by my vision of the God of Israel that is new in the last 20, 25 years. I, I mean, nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, ask my family. and they're, <laughs> They just roll their eyes. <laughs> because they hear me talking about it all the time. Now we just get back from Israel and we brought our third, well, well, Maglin, 13 years old. You saw her trying to help me mm-hmm. with, with, with all this technology. Your tech expert. Uh, she, yeah, she's my tech expert. And, and, you know, she was with us in Israel and, and she's learned some Hebrew. She learned some Hebrew, Hebrew before she went. Mm-hmm. She is thoroughly on board with all this stuff. And, and largely because of grandpa and, and all that I've taught her. And she came along to my lectures in Israel and, you know, was part of it. And we were on the bus together and I was always talking on the bus. Excellent. So, so it's, um, uh, you know, I meditate on the Shema. Um, I'm very aware of uh, Shabbat. Now I keep, you might say, a Gentile Shabbat. 
on Saturday night and Sunday because I'm involved in church on Sunday morning. Right. But, um, you know, um, uh, I'm helping to homeschool our 12 grandkids. Trying to teach them all about Israel. And, uh, you know, for Gentile grandkids, I'd say they, uh, those who are of age, know a whole lot more about Israel and the Jewishness of Jesus than the average Gentile grandkid in church. Nice. So, um, so that's, you know, and, and, um, we try to do, you know, a Seder somewhere each spring. Sure. Yeah. That's a pretty excellent answer. And again, I would say thank you because as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, the, the generation behind me, um, there is sort of a transformation of of how they see Israel and and the Jewish people, even even within the evangelical church, which is yeah. just shocking to me when I read and hear. And so it is imperative that we have, you know, people who are bringing up this generation to still see Israel and the Jewish people as central. And so thank you for that. I really like the idea that you brought up about seeing the commandments as sacraments. It reminds me of the bracha that includes the phrase "Asher Kedeshanu B'Mitzvotav." Um, a Jewish, an observant Jewish person, will, before laying tefillin or whatever, will 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 thank God for sanctifying them with the commandments, which is the same, um, you know, sacrament sanctify. We've got the same idea there of a holiness being set apart. I like that. I like that way of thinking about the commandments. It's it's um, it's a uh, uh, every commandment is sort of like a sacrament in, in a certain way, I think, if you think about it that way. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, um, to be clear, I, I didn't say the commandments are sacraments, uh, but I, uh, but uh, what I do believe is is the Jews have their own sacraments, hmm. and, and, and they're at the root of, of uh, Christian sacraments. Now, I go into this at great, great length in, in, in this new book I just finished. So... Uh, hopefully that will all become clear to uh, readers in years ahead. Once it comes out, it'll probably come out in about a year. Oh yeah, it says twenty twenty four. I don't know if we can wait that long. Is that the expected <laughs> publication date? <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, I'm getting feedback from readers um, uh, and and making adjustments, and I hope to get it off to the publisher by Thanksgiving. And you know, you know, these things take a long time. So sure. yeah. at least a year in press. So I'm thinking 2024. Got it. Well, we'll be looking forward to it. Maybe the end of uh, 2023. I, I don't know. It depends on Baker. Yeah. Baker Academic is publishing it. Oh, sure. I'll warn you ahead of time that that there will be things you won't agree with. But I think the overall vision you will agree with. So, yeah. Yeah, if we only had people on the podcast that we agreed about everything with, this would be a dead channel, man. Yeah, Jacob uh, and I wouldn't even be able to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I I've read some of your other work because um, you've you've not just written about Israel and about Zionism. Um, you've written about a lot of other stuff. Stuttering. Um, I did not read the book about stuttering, but I did dive a little bit into your book, A Trinitarian Theology mm. of Religions, which you wrote with Harold A. Netland. Yeah. Um, and we had Brad Young on the podcast recently. He's from oh, yes. the, from that old Jerusalem school, right? And and they have this um, some some ideas about Luke and priority and about uh, the Hebrew, a lost Hebrew gospel that are not necessarily mainstream. 
um, but it was it was provocative uh, a provocative conversation. And I thought since we have you on here, a theological heavy hitter who's really looked at um, this specific problem, and and you use the example in this book of um, when Christians tried to introduce the God of Israel to the Japanese people. They borrow this word um, kamisama, which is a Shinto word for a, a spirit or deity of some kind. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was just like the closest word they could find in Japanese mm-hmm. to the idea they were trying to communicate. When I was in Japan um, leading uh, worship for a little church over there for a couple months, we didn't use kami, we used shu, mm-hmm. which is just an archaic sort of like a, an old word for a husband or a master or something like that. But it's, again, it's not, there's no word in Japanese for the yeah. thing because right. they don't know about it yet. Right. Now, as I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking about the interview with Dr. Young, I thought, you know, like Jesus and the apostles were we're probably thinking in Hebrew, their theology or Aramaic, you know, we can, we can give up that ground and say it was Aramaic, but they probably weren't like, uh, they probably weren't like systematizing their thoughts in Greek. But by the time we get to the church councils and the, the laying down of the sort of the foundational beliefs of Christianity, um, we're, we're out of Hebrew, we're out of Aramaic, we're in, we're in a different language now. And I wondered if, if, if you had ever considered like, is, does that pose a problem if you're trying to develop like a biblical theology, is it, is it, uh, is it just as good in Greek as it is in Hebrew or is Dr. Young right that we need to sort of back translate this stuff and formulate it in Hebrew? I, I think God is a God of translation and Christianity, the right kind of Christianity that's focused truly on the God of Israel, um, is a religion based on translation. Now, Laman Sane um, was a great African theologian. He died a few years ago. And he wrote a, a very important book theologically called Translating the Message. He mm-hmm. grew up as a Muslim in, uh, in the Gambia, in West Africa. And he uh, distinguishes between Islam, which is not a religion of translation, which says that the word of God, uh, the Quran is only the word of God in Arabic. And once you translate it, it's no longer the word of God. Yeah. But Christianity doesn't say that. And, and I would say the best messianic theologians don't say that either. They recognize that although Hebrew was God's first language that he gave his revelation through, that God also saw fit uh, to give revelation in the Second Testament in Greek. Um, and I happen to believe, and I write about this in this new book that's coming out, that it, it was providential that the Tanakh was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. Mm. Um, in all sorts of ways, it was providential and helpful to the dissemination of the message at the center of the world in, in the country of Israel, this tiny little country that is at the intersection of, of, of the three most important continents. Mm. And, and it was providential that, that it was translated into Greek when it was for the purpose of transmission to the nations. Yeah. So, um, uh, are things lost in translation? Of course, they're always lost in translation. But things are also sometimes gained in translation. 
And there's a great book on the Septuagint titled When God Spoke Greek. Hmm. And, and you might be interested in that book. It's a wonderful book. And it shows how uh, the Septuagint in in many ways is we, we are finding is closer to the original Hebrew than the present Masoretic texts. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Put that on my list. That's fascinating. When God spoke Greek. Some empty space on the shelf here. Th that brings up um, something that I read in the end of in in your concluding article of the compilation, um, understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity, which for all of our listeners um, should be required reading. Uh, that is a compilation of some fantastic messianic scholarship that Dr. McDermott edited, right, and, and contributed to, of course. But it should be required reading, understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity. Uh, you pointed toward a church that is that remains to a large degree ignorant of its Jewish foundation. You said virtually ignoring the Old Testament in our preaching means that we might be functional Marcionites, uh, which suggests that our knowledge of the New Testament of the God who breathes and lives in it is fundamentally flawed. Uh, this kind of thinking comes from neglect of our Jewish roots, ignorance of the Jewish character of the New Testament, and has produced a worldly church that scandalizes even the world. These are very strong statements, but here's what I want to ask you to, to mention in terms of translation. You said kind of a, a first step toward restoring the full picture. You suggest we begin by making some simple shifts in language boiled down to four key terms that I picked up. And I wonder if you might address each of these briefly, as I too think that these replacement terms might be very beneficial in a fight to overcome replacement theology. Yes. For, for uh, too many Christians, Christ has become Jesus's last name. Right. And they have no idea what it means, Messiah. It's the anointed one, Christos. Uh, which is, a, of course, the Greek translation of Moshiach, the anointed one, which yeah. means the Messiah. When, when, when in, and I, encourage, I encouraged my um, divinity students at Beeson for five years, where, where I taught and ran the, the Anglican program. Um, I encouraged my students. I, 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 I said, look, when you're reading scripture, and particularly when you preach, and when you come to the word Christ, say Messiah rather than Christ, because mm -hmm. once you say the word Messiah, ears per perk up and they realize, oh, that's a Jewish word. Oh, you mean Jew Jesus? Oh, that helps remind me that Jesus was Jewish. Um, secondly, uh, particularly when you preach from the Gospel of John and when you read the Gospel of John, from the pulpit, or just in your home. Most of the time, when when in almost every English translation it says Jews, it mm -hmm. should be instead Judeans. Now the word is eudaioi, which can be translated Jews or Judeans. And in almost every case, because of what's going on in the Gospel of John, this conflict between the Sadducees who are um, ruling the temple establishment. These are the Judeans whom John uh, 
puts up as, as the enemies of the Messiah, Yeshua. Right. And it should not be translated Jews, and particularly in the classic text, John 8, 44, where, he, where Jesus says, you, you dioi, are of your father, the devil. It's very clear in the context of chapter 7 and 8 that Jesus has left Galilee, which is not Judea, not according to John, uh, and has made the 100-mile trek south, which took three to five days on foot, and come to Judea, which is in the middle of Israel, I tell people. It, it's not the desert in the south. It's the hill country in the middle. And, of course, Jerusalem is in the center of it. Culturally and geographically, a long, long way from Galilee up in the north, Galilee of the nations, it's even called, mm -hmm. because of the mixture. Mm -hmm. um, and the Galileans are thought of as the hicks, the hillbillies, right. the uneducated, mm -hmm. the rubes, the West Virginians. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I'm down here in Virginia. The West Right, Virginia. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, um, very, you know, they are despised mm -hmm. by the, the elites, the sophisticated down in Judea, particularly in Jerusalem, and particularly the, the Sadducees, who are theological minimalists, who don't believe in angels, or life after death. And, of course, I tell my audiences that's why they were sad, you see. Right, mm -hmm. right. So um, uh, when you hear, you know, and, and and I tell my audiences, look, for centuries and centuries, uh, in, in the Middle Ages and even in the early modern age and, and even until all too frequently, um, uh, all, all too recently, uh, in Holy Week, when, when the Gospel of John is read, Jews used to be terrified on Good Absolutely. Friday because after hearing the Good Friday sermons denouncing the Jews as the Christ killers, they would pour out of the churches and go into the Jewish areas of the city and loot and destroy and even kill mm -hmm. based on what they heard from these terrible translations in the Gospel of John. Right. So yeah. Judeans, not Jews. Third, law. Uh, law should be translated teaching. We we should, you know, law, law law unfortunately has a negative connotation for us, particularly these days, mm -hmm. when the long arm of the law is everywhere and it's usually negative, telling us what we cannot do or should not do, mm -hmm. or reminding us of our taxes due, or reminding us <laughs> of of that siren that we hear and makes our heart pump when it's behind us and it's and it's pulling us over. Right. Uh, law is negative in the English language, but Torah, which law, you know, nomos translates, uh, should should be better translated teaching, mm -hmm. and, and and the true meaning in the first testament is of instruction coming from our wise, loving, heavenly Father who wants, to, who wants us to have a good and prosperous life. Look at Psalm 1. It's right there in Psalm 1. And right there in Psalm 119. And rather than uh, the impression we've gotten from the reformers in the 16th century that law was a negative thing and they interpreted in context 
of late medieval nominalism taught by bad theology in the Catholic Church in the 14th and 15th centuries, which Catholics later corrected and learned from, uh, that this was not law that if we follow, it will earn us our salvation, not a Mm -hmm. negative burden of the law that that, uh, is so burdensome. No, Psalm 119.97, O Lord, how I love thy law. Mm -hmm. Well, where 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 is this coming from? You know, D, you know, D, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you know, was a German martyr because of his teaching about the Jews, because of his belief in the Jewish character of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was hung and and tortured first, by the way, before he was hung. Uh, Bonhoeffer famously said, "No Christian will ever be able to understand the Old Testament." until he understands the meaning of Psalm 119, verse 97, O Lord, how I love thy law. Wow, I love thy law. It is not a burden. You know, I tell Christians too that, um, you know, so many Christians think, oh, those poor Jews, they have 613 laws they have to follow. Oh, those poor (laughs) Jews. Well, Michael McClyman, who I think is the best historical theologian in the world, several years ago, he wrote a book which is still in press on all the discrete commandments in the New Testament. Discrete means not repeated, C-R-E-T-E. Uh, and he found there were 800. All oh, those poor Christians, those poor <laughs> The burden of all those New Testament discrete laws. <laughs> right. So... So finally, um, kingdom, you know, for too many Christians, especially since the fourth century, um, you know, kingdom is simply a matter of the mind or a matter of the heart. It's, it's, you know, simply the inner man, the rule of Jesus in my heart. Well, that's not what kingdom means all through the Bible, including the New Testament. It, right. It's a visible thing. It's a king we can see. Uh, it's a rule that has effects on our bodies, on our outward lives, and so too in the restoration of Israel that is prophesied by Jesus himself and by the disciples, Peter and Paul. Uh, this is going to be something that we're going to live here on this earth, not up in heaven in, uh, uh, with, with bodil- uh, you know, bodiless souls. No, on this renewed earth right here. Uh, with resurrected bodies, just as Jesus had a resurrected body after the resurrection before his ascension. So so uh, the kingdom, and by the way, I highly recommend an uh, incredibly significant new book, newish, it's been out about a year, Luke's Jewish Eschatology. Have you heard of this book? Uh, who's the author? By Isaac Oliver, and by the way, he's got a chapter. Uh, Isaac Oliver has got a chapter in understanding Jewish roots. I, I, Isaac Oliver is a Jew; he's not a Messianic Jew, right? Now, I think he might be on his way. <laughs> I think he might be under the radar, but nevertheless, uh, he's a non-Messianic Jew, and it's this brilliant book uh, published by Oxford, Luke's Jewish Eschatology, in which he talks about this very thing that the kingdom of God, that in Luke's eschatology, the kingdom is of this worldly. Now, of course, it's in the eschaton, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. it's a political, social, material reality. 
Yeah. So, yeah. so um, those, those are the four words. Big ones. That I suggest. And I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you. Thank you for, for exploring that and, and explaining that. Well, I think we've covered all of the uh, material that we planned to. Is that right, Damien? Or do we have well, any? now for the second hour. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to say. So at the end of every podcast, though, we do, uh, we, we like to shoot the guest a few questions that we don't give them in advance. We ask that they answer off the top of their head. And we don't give them any time to prepare. Um, so for your rapid fire round, Dr. Gerald R. McDermott, here's what the people want to know. First question. <laughs> Nicholas Thomas Wright, Paul Philip Levertoff, Foley Thomas Beach, Justin Portal, Welby, all the cool Anglicans have three names. Can we get your middle name on the podcast, or are you going to stick with the initial? No, Robert. Gerald it's Robert. Robert. That's yes, cool. I have, I have an uncle, out. Robert. It's official. <laughs> you can join the club now, the three-name club. All right, second question. Everyone seems to have a problem with how America's going today, but if Jonathan Edwards could see his country now almost 300 years later... What's one thing he would be hopeful about? He would be hopeful because it is so bad that people will start looking up. Okay. So third question. You and I, if, I have, uh, if I've read your bio correctly, have three sons. My oldest is 13, and I'm a little overwhelmed. So what's the best piece of advice you have to overwhelmed Ditz families? And by Ditz, I, of course, mean double income, three sons. Oh, whoa. Um, try to pray with them each day. And, and discipline without anger. Discipline, Good advice. Discipline is love. Kids yeah. need, need discipline, but without anger. Without anger. That's important. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Finally, or not finally, last, second to last question. You got your PhD in Iowa, famously the home of the Red Delicious Apple. Did you get hooked on that Red Delicious out there in Iowa, or do you have a different favorite apple? I'm glad you asked that because my grandkids will all tell you the answer to that question. Grandpa hates Red Delicious. Mm. They, it lost its flavor about 40 years ago. Uh -huh. And the best apple today is the Envy apple, E-N-V-Y. That, that's the best apple. And all my Envy. grandkids are hooked, I, I, I think because of me, I will take credit for that, on Envy apples. Isn't that the one that Eve ate? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't not. recommend this <laughs> apple. <laughs> we have the Empire apple, we have the Rome apple, and now we have the Envy apple. I don't know. Man. These, it's getting darker and darker. We'll <laughs> we'll put that down. We'll put a notch under Envy on the chart here as we keep track of everybody's favorite apples. And finally, um, what's coming up next for you and how can people connect with you on social media? Just uh, take this opportunity to plug yourself and your, your Twitter account or whatever it is you got out there. I, I, I don't do uh, Twitter, although now with the new Twitter... Uh, that's under Elon Musk, I just might, because I believe in, in freedom, and it has been not free. Um, you know, I have a, a blog page that I've been contributing to very infrequently in the last year, but I might do it more. It's called the Northampton Seminar, the Northampton Seminar, and if you Google it, it will come up. I just put uh, something on there yesterday on holy order. Um, 
I've got this, you know, my magnum opus coming out, hopefully in about a year. Um, this spring, I hope to finish up a book I started years ago called Deep Anglicanism. Mm. Um, so those are the things that are coming up for me. And I hope to get uh, back into uh, homeschooling my grandkids. Mm. Only 12 of them. That should be easy. Yeah. Well, six are here in Charlottesville. The other six are in Pittsburgh. Okay, so, got it. And Pittsburgh is not too hard to get to from here. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you on many levels. First, and obviously for your participation here in Messiah Podcast. Um, and as I've said throughout the podcast, thank you for the work. Thank you for the investment. Thank you for the change that you are laboring to bring about. Thank you for the partnerships that you're making that are going to have an impact on this and, God willing, future generations. Thank you for your scholarship, for your heart, and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Much, much, much to learn. May the Lord bless you and your magnum opus and all, all that you put your hand to. Thank you very much. Well, it's been my pleasure um, to be on this broadcast, and I pray that God blesses and multiplies this broadcast. Thank you. Torah Club is the world's fastest-growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. Well, man, I wish I wish for a hundred more Gerald McDermott's. I mean, to see somebody so... I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it, sometimes it seems like the more education you have, the harder it is to change your perspective. And here's a guy with a PhD who 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 took another look at the Bible and realized that Israel's at the center of what God's doing in the world, that Jesus is Jewish. And, you know, if he can come to that realization, that gives me a lot of hope for seminarians and professors um, you know, people all over the world. And like he said, in the global South, probably more than anywhere else, that people are coming around. This yeah. is, this is going to be the thing. Like this is going to become mainstream and we are going to replace replacement theology. Like uh, it's, it's very, I'm enthusiastically hopeful no. after talking with Dr. McDermott. Absolutely. I, I, I had a, a little bit of, uh, the best kind of pride as I was listening to him talk, there is, there is such a thing as healthy pride um, in the sense that seeing how our podcast has been Dr. Kinzer and Jen Rosner and Brad Young and, and now Dr. McDermott, it's like, wow, man, there is, it just gives you hope what you just said. It gives you hope. There is such an I, th I still think it could be described as a as an undercurrent for sure, but there is a huge uh, an increasing flow of awareness, mm -hmm. of boldness, of people wanting to impact the future in the teaching institutions and make changes. And I was just so happy to be a part of it today and listening mm -hmm. to him, you know, share. And I, I I said it a lot, I know, but. 
his willingness, as you just said, to to make a significant shift. We we need we need some shifting. Yeah, yeah we really yeah, do. and I think you know he nailed it on the head when he said that we're in the mainstream. There has been a shift, sort of away from dispensationalism. I remember when I was I was working at a church like ten years ago, and I was I was hoping for something better. I was applying for jobs, and everybody that was hiring was like a gospel coalition or like a like a John Piper sort of Mark Driscoll sort of thing, which uh-huh. is very very much like anti-Zionist. It's very much um, replacement theology, very cl- classically Calvinist. Um, and, and he's right that a lot of sort of mainstream evangelicals are going that way. Mm -hmm. But I think that people who really have a respect and a love for the scripture are going to read the Bible and they're going, the, you know, the, the, the sort of classic evangelicalism, which is, which maybe doesn't go one way or the other in Israel. It's like, okay, but when your belief is so far from what the Bible says, then when you read the Bible, it should become obvious. He says, you know, he talks about being trained not to see yeah. Israel's centrality there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that training can only go so far. And I think as we as we see like this sort of anti, anti-Jewish, anti-Zionist theology, honestly, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm just a, a naive optimist, but I see it as an opportunity because if that's where you're at, all you got to do is open the Bible one time and start reading and the the opportunity presents itself there um, for you to see what you're missing. If you don't have a strong opinion one way or the other, maybe you'll miss it. But if you if you have this diametrically opposed idea to where you, Israel's not even on your radar mm-hmm. and then you open any part of the Bible, you know... I hate to harp on about this, but like when I was in um, high school, I was listening to commentaries, Bible commentaries by a guy at a Coeur d'Alene called Chuck Missler. And he was like almost there. And he was like, you know, the first chapter in every systematic theology textbook is bibliology, but it should be Israelology mm, because mm-hmm. five sixths of the Bible is about Israel. Yeah. And he was, he was five sixths of the way there because the whole Bible is about Israel. But there's been people like, there's been all you gotta do is open the Bible, man. Yeah, it's it's like that's our <laughs> the, doc, Dr. McDermott was the the academic version of so many people, uh, part of the first fruits of Zion family yeah. who have the something's missing, you know, uh, uh, eye opening aha, wow, oh my goodness, I'm reading the Bible and this just there's something missing, and so I, I just I I love being a part of hearing these stories and knowing the impact that it's going to have. So. Anyway, to all of our listeners, uh, thank you so much for your faithful participation as listeners, and certainly be subscribers to Messiah Podcast. Hit that subscribe button, give us a five-star review, tell your friends Dr. McDermott's doing his thing and Dr. Young's doing his thing, and we all we all have our part to play in it too, so thank you for your for your loyalty and your sharing. And we are blessed to have the opportunity to share these things with you. So shalom to everyone. May God bless you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea